Hey everybody, this is episode 146 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you on Labor Day from Austin, Texas. My apologies for the one day delay in this post, but I actually had an interview fall through this week, so I'm recording this a day late and we'll get it up on the same day, so hopefully you can enjoy it if you choose on this Labor Day Monday. Today's topic is going to be what I'm calling a Labor Labor Day smorgasbord of things. It's been a little while since I've been through details on some current events, so we're going to get to some current events, and then I've got some just random coaching thoughts for you at the end of the podcast based on some recent athlete discussions I've had, some things that are top of mind for me as a coach that I think might be relevant reminders for you as athletes. So we'll get to that in the second half of the discussion. But I'm going to start with, let's see, we've got four or five things to talk about from a current event standpoint. The first thing I wanted to cover off on is my recent discussion with Adam Goucher on the Clean Sport Collective podcast. I don't know if you've had a chance to follow along with that podcast. I know earlier in the summer I posted a couple of episodes from that new podcast that I started with Kara Goucher and her agent, Shanna Burnett. We just posted our ninth episode, which was an interview with Adam talking about his perspective on clean sport. His perspective is a very crystal clear one and also unique in that he competed at a time before there was EPO testing. And so he has what I think is a unique perspective on this topic and does not mince words when we talked about it in my interview with him that went up last weekend. So I would encourage you to check that out. You can just find it on iTunes or more or less any podcast platform by searching Clean Sport Collective Podcast. I'll also link to it in the show notes. It's episode nine. And if you aren't following along with that podcast, please do as we interview people from a variety of sports about the topic of clean sport. Adam being the most recent interview. And of course, we're posting those episodes every other weekend. But to give you a little teaser on the Adam episode, I wanted to play one short clip about a story he tells in in the interview about kicking an athlete off of the University of Colorado track. So I'm going to play that and then chat about it for just a second as a teaser for that episode so you can go check it out. Here's a quick clip. And basically I said, listen, I was like, no, you can't work out here. And they're like, why? It's open. It's open. We won't work out here. I said, nope, no, you cannot work here and work out here. And they kept pressing. And I finally said, nope, you will not work out here. No drug cheats allowed straight to his face. And, it's, and they were like, in, you know, like they hadn't, he hadn't tested positive, right. you know? And so they were just like appalled. And I'm like, get you know, like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And I'm like, get out, go see ya, go work out somewhere else. And, um, no, that's a passion. I'm like, I'm not going to be, you're not going to step foot on my home track. You're not going to step foot into my house being an unethical cheater. So there you go. If that little clip doesn't get you excited to listen to Adam talk about his passion for clean sport, then I don't know what will, but you get more in that episode, not only on that story about how he kicked an athlete off the University of Colorado track, but also 
just in general and how he saw drugs in the sport during his career as well as we talk about his time supporting Kara through her time at the Nike Oregon Project and then also through her time whistleblowing on the Nike Oregon Project where she went forward with or went forward to USADA to detail some of the things that went on behind the scenes there. So we get to all of that with Adam and I think it gives you a really clear perspective on how those that cheat in sport affect clean athletes in ways that extend well beyond the track itself or well beyond even the podium to affecting their livelihoods. Kara joins me in the interview, even mentions how it affected it, how it has affected their son Colt as a part of them dealing with these challenges. So go check that out again. Episode number nine of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. I will also post the link in the show notes. The other thing I want to mention about Adam recently, and and as I think most of you know by now, I am passionate about supporting women in sport. And Adam recently put out a blog post about the struggles and challenges that he and Kara had with Nike when Kara was pregnant and then after her pregnancy when they were early in Colt's life and part of what he talks about is the fact that Nike suspended her contract Kara's contract when she was at the time their primary breadwinner Nike suspended her contract and then would not resume paying her on contract until she had resumed competing so she busted her ass probably as she says now returning too soon from pregnancy to heavy training and it caused a lot of emotional trauma physical trauma and then ultimately she competed at Boston just about six months post having her having cold got a PR that day but was competing under a suspended contract not even paid by Nike at that time so that she could try to earn back her contract in some way and so it just puts a really clear picture on the need for change as it relates to maternity rights for women especially women who are athletes and I know this topic requires certainly energy and work to be done broadly in all forms of work environments but I think it's especially important for these athletes that are working under contract to ensure that their contracts aren't suspended or their pay isn't reduced while they're pregnant or returning from pregnancy. Now this topic has gotten a lot of recent press in particular thanks to the New York Times and Lindsey Krause who have helped Elisa Montano, Allison Felix as well as Kara Goucher tell their stories about how they were treated by their sponsor while pregnant and Nike as a response came out and said that they were updating their contracts to ensure that no female athletes received pay reductions within 18 months of becoming pregnant or post-pregnancy but as Adam points out in his blog this doesn't talk at all about contract suspensions which also weren't in the legalese of Kara's contract at the t- at the time but they just 
decided to impose upon her at their whim based on what suited them, even though Kara was continuing to train through pregnancy. She was continuing to to do public appearances. She had over 20 public appearances while while pregnant with Colt for Nike. She also wrote a book during that time, so she continued to stay relevant for her sponsor, even though they didn't see the, the value of that and chose to suspend her contract anyway. And so... I highly encourage you to read Adam's words about it because it paints a clear picture of the impact of that on her life and the fact that there is more to still be done on this topic. I wanted to read a quick blurb from it just to kind of give you a little bit of a teaser from the blog. And again, I'll post this in the show notes as well. She said, or he said, about Kara's pregnancy. When Kara reached the six-month mark in her pregnancy, we got news out of the blue. She was being suspended without pay until she could, could, could compete again. We were shocked. Was she not valuable going out and doing appearances and photo shoots? After all, there were requirements beyond racing in her contract. Were they now worth nothing? But what really confused us was that we had addressed this ahead of time and been assured that as long as Kara upheld her appearance request, she would be fine. We didn't realize fine meant suspension without pay. And what exactly was suspension without pay? The term didn't exist in her contract. It was simply something Nike made up to suit their needs. Kara's pregnancy was considered high risk, and the stress of this was concerning to her doctor and those around her. Yet we felt like we had to, we had been wronged and we were searching for answers. Ironically, the man who just announced Nike's amendment to contracts calling for celebration of pregnancy met with us and said that Kara had not done her job in a year and that she was not paid to share her journey. She was paid to race. As she began training after giving birth to our son, the stress and emotional pressure were affecting our entire family. Two weeks after giving birth, she was back at practice. Within two months of giving birth, she was running 100 miles a week. Her doctor told her she was concerned that Kara was training too hard too soon while breastfeeding an infant. Eventually, Kara felt she had to wean our son because she had to choose returning to racing over breastfeeding. And it goes on to talk about the pressures of that time in their lives. And really, it's just heartbreaking. And I think it perfectly demonstrates why there is need for change on this and why there is need to call for Nike to and other sponsors to do even more than what they've already announced to ensure that female athletes are protected when they make this choice because it is their choice at what time they decide to build their family. So I would highly encourage you to check that out. Again, I'll, I'll link to Adam's blog in the show notes. And again, also check out, please, Adam's perspective on clean sport in the Clean Sport Collective podcast, episode nine. So that's a couple things there on current event topics that I think are social topics that are relevant. But let's also talk about the Zurich Diamond League final. So switching to some current results. The Diamond League season is wrapping up now as they have a couple of meets left. Two different final events with different finals showcased in each of those events. Zurich being the first one 
and you had some really, really killer races in this one. So let's break a few of them down. The first being what I think many would deem the most exciting race of that meet, which was the 800-meter Diamond League final for the men, where Nigel Amos went out really, really fast, and then Donovan Brazier, who went out more conservatively and who was running probably 20 meters back with 200 meters to go and about 10 meters back with 100 to go, just came roaring down that final stretch as Amos tied up completely to get the win in what was a really impressive race for Brazier, not only because he wins the Diamond League final, but also it shows his maturity as a tactician. You know, I've been very vocal about talking about the fact that he has not been a great tactician in particularly championship races. He's usually done better in pace affairs like this Diamond League final was. But even in this case, to get the win required some nuance because it required him laying off the hot early pace set by the pacemaker. They went out in the pacemaker and Amos went out in something like 48 seconds which is insanely fast. And then Amos completely died on the back half. I think his second half split was 56 seconds, whereas Brazier ran 50 seconds in the first lap and then 51 seconds in the second lap to pace this thing perfectly. Almost got the American record and then just nipped a dying Nigel Amos at the finish line. And again, what was a really impressive win. I would highly encourage you to go go Google this one. You can find the replay of the race on NBC Sports. You know, whether you have access to the paywall or not, you can you can Google it and pull up the clip and just watch it. It's a really fun watch and just to watch him come roaring by everybody in the final one fifty is quite quite unbelievable. But congrats, Donovan Brazier. Huge result here getting the Diamond League win and it also opens up another spot for the u.s for the 800 in doha for the world champs because we get an extra spot if we have the diamond league champion champion and that we thought might happen on the women's side with Aji wilson slated to potentially win the women's eight next week in or this week on friday in brussels but now we've got an extra spot in the men's 800 as well. So that's pretty cool. The beneficiary of that is a guy named Brandon Kidder who finished Brandon Kidder, who finished sixth actually in the U.S. champs, but was the next athlete on the list with the world standard. So he gets to go to Doha thanks to Donovan Brazier's win here. And this also in my opinion, means that Donovan Brazier is the favorite going into the world champs in Doha. We also have to give a shout-out here to Clayton Murphy, who finished fifth in the Diamond League final, running a solid race as well. He stayed actually slightly ahead of Brazier going into that final 200-250 and basically finished in in the same spot with Brazier coming around to go get the victory. But... Two Americans in the top five in the Diamond League eight. Pretty impressive results there. The next race I wanted to talk about was the women's 400-meter hurdles as 
Sydney McLaughlin dominated this one, running 52.85 to get a season best. She also beat two other Americans who rounded out the rounded out the podium, Shamir Little, as well as Delilah Muhammad, who finished third, fading late. Muhammad is actually your your now world record holder as she earned that world record at the U.S. Champs, beating McLaughlin there. And so that was really the battle that everybody talked about going into this one is Sydney McLaughlin versus world record holder Delilah Muhammad and who might win that battle and could Muhammad come back after having that big result at USA's and still perform well in this Diamond League final. Well, turns out she faded a bit, couldn't carry that momentum forward, and Sydney McLaughlin, who just turned 20 years old, is your Diamond League champion in the 400-meter hurdles. That puts her in a solid position as she still seems to be building through the season for Doha. Also puts the Americans, Americans in the solid position to potentially sweep the podium in Doha of the top three 400-meter hurdlers with McLaughlin Little and Muhammad all looking solid there. So we will see how that plays out. But again, just really impressive from the 20-year-old hurdler from New Balance as her sponsor. Just absolutely amazingly poised and seems to be unfazed by any stage. So congrats to her and definitely someone to watch as we get closer to Doha. All right, let's switch gears to the women's distance. We had a couple of events worth talking about here. We'll talk about first the women's 3,000-meter steeplechase. Emma Coburn was competing as the only American in this one and was very vocal going into it about her desire to finally break nine minutes to earn a PR in the steeple. And she went out really fast with the pacemakers and ultimately ended up going out in the first K, the first third of the race, in faster than world record pace. You know, she needs three minutes per K to run a nine-minute race. She went out in 2.54 with the pacemaker going out in 2.53. And Chep Koetsch, who is a world record holder, was actually slightly ahead of that. And so the pace was hot early. Emma was brave in going out with that hot early pace and ultimately she paid for it as she faded late finishing sixth place in a time of 9:10 fading significantly over those final few laps for her now some would say sixth place that's so disappointing for Emma Coburn who is your current world champion and looking to defend that title in Doha and I would say no that's not the way to look at it because you know she went for it and you got to give her props for that she as she would say later on Twitter, she found her limits and clearly went beyond it on this day. But you got to give her props for going for it, for testing those boundaries, for sticking her nose in this race early, for being willing to chase Chepkoetsch, who has now developed this pattern of going out fast and strong. And so I think part of this for Emma was figuring out what her limit, her line was, so that she knows how to manage her tactics in the World Championship final in Doha. But clearly she found a bit of that today and faded late as a result, got passed by several folks over the final laps. But 
in my mind, that's, that's okay. You know, sometimes that's the way it goes and you got to give her credit for giving for, for trying, for putting her neck out there for seeing, you know, if she could break nine off of a hot early pace. Clearly that wasn't the case with the 254 first K would it have been had she run maybe a 258 or a 259 first K we won't know, but now Emma knows her limits and she also knows if Chep Koach does go out hard without pacemakers in Doha that you know Emma will know how to manage that, that effort so that she could potentially hope that Chep Koach comes back. In this case, Chep Koach ended up winning in 901 even though she went out in that hot early pace and so she faded as well. She didn't quite fade as much as some of the others, but she faded as well. And so that does tell you something that, you know, Emma can use to develop her tactics to hopefully defend her title in Doha. And and we will see. I think one thing, though, that was a little bit disappointing was not to see Courtney Frerichs or Colleen Quigley competing in this in this final. And I know that's that the Bowman Track Club has gotten some criticism for not racing enough to be able to put their athletes in these Diamond League finals. And so that's a bit interesting. But I do think that this is all all a part of Schumacher's grand plans to get his athletes ready for when it matters in October in Doha versus here at this Diamond League final in August. The season does play out a little bit weird because of the timing of the Diamond Leagues versus... Doha with that later world championships and so obviously Schumacher and company have have prioritized the meet later and so it'll be interesting to see how those two athletes Quigley and Ferks are prepared and does that put them in position perhaps a better position than Coburn perhaps a better position than some of these athletes who have been who have been trying to stay on for a longer period of time so we'll have to see how that plays out. But slightly disappointing, I think, as a fan not to see all three of the top Americans here in this Diamond League steeplechase final. Okay, so that's that one. Now the other dis- women's distance event that I want to talk about is the women's 1500. We had Jenny Simpson competing in the 1500 meter final. Sadly, Shelby Houlihan, also Bowman Track Club athlete, was not in this one. But you did have Jenny Simpson competing. She finished a disappointing eighth place with Sifan Hassan and Constance Klosterhofen from the Nike Oregon Project going 1-2. And this is, man, this is a, a race that to me is a little bit disappointing to watch just because of the way the paces played out and how Hassan and Klosterhofen just absolutely destroyed the final laps with this one. Again, it starts to look like a little bit of video game times with the finishes on this one and with the way Hassan was able to switch gears and just absolutely blow the doors off the field. As I said earlier in a podcast midsummer post my trip to France and seeing Hassan get the mile world record in Monaco, I just, I'm not sure if I can believe what I'm seeing with those two athletes from the Oregon Project, at least 
it gives me enough pause to question it as a fan to to not be excited about this about this result and I would imagine that it's frustrating for somebody like Jenny Simpson who I believe is doing the right way doing things the right way to be beaten by athletes from the Oregon Project to be beaten by athletes like Jinjabi Dababa who has historically been associated with a coach who was found with a bunch of EPO in his apartment so it must be disappointing if you're Jenny to just see them blow the doors off of you in the final lap and a half of this race so this one I must say is another one of those sad races for me to watch just not that interesting Whereas what I think we'll see hopefully in Doha is something that's more interesting, which is, you know, a championship style racing affair that actually has real tactics associated with it, which which in many cases typically levels the playing field for athletes like Jenny Simpson. And then, of course, hopefully by then you'll have Shelby Houlihan on top of her game to compete for a potential medal as well. I think it's more likely that Houlihan could actually earn a medal in Doha than Simpson, even with her history. But both of those two Americans will have a better chance, at least a more level playing field, to potentially beat someone like Hassan or Klosterhofen or Jensebi Dababa. And who knows, maybe not all of those athletes will be on the start line in Doha for whatever reason. So we'll have to see. But I would say this race, again, falls in the more depressing category. Unfortunately for me as a fan, to watch... And you will have to, as a fan, judge that yourself. So that's the final women's distance event to talk about. Then I wanted to talk a little bit about the men's 5,000, which saw the Ugandan Josh Cheptegi get the win in 12.57, breaking 13. You had a couple of Americans in this field not do so well. Paul Chalimo finished 13. Finished 8th in 13-14. Ben True was 9th in 13-18. And the top of this podium was dominated by the East Africans with Joshua Cheptegi and Hagos Gebrouet getting 1-2. Cheptegi, I think, was underestimated coming into this and is definitely going to be a force both at the 5K and the 10K at Worlds. And so that's a name to know and a name to watch and is a potential heir apparent to Mo Farah in the 5K and 10K as he just showed with this Diamond League win in the 5,000. So take note of that name, Chip Taggy, because I think he has potential to win both the 5 and 10 in Doha. But he'll have his hands full with the host of Ethiopian athletes including Yomith Kachelka, who runs for the Oregon Project, as well as Paul Chalimo, the American, who will be trying to knock him off that favorite spot after this win. So we will see. But this one was fast, and unfortunately for the American runners, did not play out as they would hoped, as they would have hoped. And I think it shows that Paul Chalimo has a lot of work to do after getting second at USA's in order to actually compete for a medal in Doha. But they still have a little bit of time to put the final pieces on their training for that. So with that, we'll wrap up talking about the Diamond League final. You'll want to definitely also pay attention to 
the next round of Diamond League final events coming up at the, the last Diamond League meet of the year in Brussels this Friday. And so if you're an NBC Sports Gold subscriber, you can you can watch all the action there and see the rest of the Diamond League finals coming at you from Brussels later this week. All right, so now with that, let's switch to completely different world and talk about trail racing, the UTMB 106-mile race went off this past weekend from Chamonix, and we had an American woman, Courtney DeWalter, get the win in what was just an absolutely ridiculous performance, ridiculously good performance. She finished 21st overall, was the second American on the day, almost being the first American of men or women to finish this race. She was passed in the final miles by Jason Schlarb, who finished just a few minutes ahead of her, but crushed crushed the, the women's field, ended up an hour ahead of the next fastest female, and just was absolutely dominant, finishing in just over 24 hours this completely grueling race. This UTMB, it's it's the the biggest race in Europe for for tra- you know in in trail and just has absolutely absurd terrain. I mean, you've got 30,000 feet of gain in 100 and 106 miles, just over 170k. And you've got 30,000 feet of descent in what is just non-stop up and down on this race. I actually got to run, quote unquote, run a sliver of the course. I think it was about two miles of the course in the race I did in France in July. And so I got a little taste of it. But the the taste I got was was really minor. I mean it was tough, but minor compared to the grand scale of this event. You had twenty five hundred runners Start only 1,400 and change actually finish the race. So that just goes to show you had 1,000 people not make it in the time. The race was won by a Spanish athlete for the first time in a while. You had Pau Capel get the win, the North Face athlete. He finished in 20 hours and 19 minutes with a really convincing win. He finished by, he won by almost 50 minutes over the next fastest athlete. So he did that averaging 11 minutes, 30 seconds per mile on this course, which I can't even imagine having done some of this terrain and terrain like this in the race that I did in France. You have just so many miles where you're gaining a thousand feet per mile, nine hundred feet per mile, some of them even fourteen hundred feet per mile, and in those cases, it might take me when I did it thirty minutes to go that mile, and so you have that kind of terrain out there, and to be able to average eleven thirties means not only are you insanely fast at going uphill, but you're also probably just bombing these really technical steep descents. So amazing. <laughs> amazing results and Powell basically went out hard and then led more or less start to finish in this one some people thought he may have gone out too hard but obviously proved that he did not 
Courtney DeWalter took a more conservative approach. She actually didn't go out in the lead and didn't take the lead, I think, until mile 55 and then just pulled away, began dominating from there, winning by nearly an hour. And this after coming off of injury where she had to pull out of Western States, was dealing with a hip issue. She said she was actually biking for three weeks post-Western tra- Western States in cross-training before she was able to resume her running training again. She said she wasn't sure exactly how this would race would go because she didn't quite get in the climbing that she wanted to get in order to be ready for this. But clearly, clearly that was not an issue. So kudos to Courtney on the win. She's just absolutely ridiculously good at these long crazy mountain races i've also got to give a shout out to local trail athlete and good friend of mine paul terranova he finished 55th overall out of nearly 1500 finishers in 27 hours and 22 minutes really really impressive result for paul there getting almost to top 50 but just outside the top 50 to do this in 27 hours and finish at that level in this race is just so so impressive especially for somebody who trains mostly in austin where it's much much flatter there's certainly no mountains to easily access from here although i do i know he did spend some time in colorado before heading over to france so anyway just want to give kudos to paul he was also really instrumental in helping me prep for my 50 mile race so i have to not only thank him for that, but also give him a shout out here for really, really crushing this race. This is his first UTMB finish. I know he's finished a race that there's a couple of prep races, or not prep races, but a couple of races on the, the during the week of UTMB that build up to UTMB. And so he's done one of the, the quote unquote shorter races in this running trail running festival that is UTMB. And so to see him actually do the big one and get it done in a really impressive time and place is awesome. So congrats to Paul. Always an inspiration. All right, let's switch gears from trail back to now the roads. And let's talk about some some changes that we have for the the Atlanta Marathon Trials course that were announced this week that I think bring up some some perhaps small but interesting twists in the the 2020 trials course coming up on leap day February 29th 2020 and if you haven't already planned to be in Atlanta for that you should definitely plan to be there I know I will be cheering on not only some rogue athletes but also all of all of the athletes that will be competing for a spot in Tokyo the Atlanta Track Club chose to make some modifications to the course that were announced this week. Part of the reason for that was because of the what is becoming an, an historically large field for the race. So they wanted to eliminate some of the turns, make the course slightly more spectator friendly. So they've gone from what was four loops of a roughly six mile course plus a two mile adder at the end to get your 26.2 miles to now a to now three loops of an eight mile course plus that same two mile adder at the end 
what this has done is extended the time that the runners spend on Peachtree, which is one of the primary roads and arteries in Atlanta. So athletes will now be heading further north on Peachtree to extend the, you know, to extend, extend each loop. They've also eliminated some turns from the course so that it's now a more straightforward course for the athletes. Partially, those changes were due to the field size, as I referenced. And as a result of these changes, you've now you've now taken the elevation and dropped it just a hair. So it's now slightly less intense from an elevation standpoint. Previously, the course was unveiled with 1,400 feet of climbing, and they haven't yet announced the impact on the elevation change for the course, but the the thought is that it'll be a little bit less than that 1,400 feet of climbing throughout the race, which is still going to be a hefty amount of climbing. So this is not making it an easier course really by any stretch. If And if it is easier, it is only slightly by a hair. But this makes the course a little more spectator friendly, eliminates some turns. There was in particular one part of the course that was a one block loop that had about four turns in the span of one-tenth of a mile. And with now the field sizes reaching, at this point, I think we're at 522 qualifiers, which includes 341 women and 181 men, with more to come this fall as that window is still open through into mid-January. The the field is likely to approach something like 600 runners which will definitely be an all-time record for the for the trials and so the Atlanta Track Club wanted to take out some of those turns to make it a little bit easier to navigate with that kind of a field size and so there you have it some of those changes makes it a little bit easier to spectate for those of us that'll be there and a little bit easier to navigate and run as an athlete in the event and we'll have to see exactly what the elevation change is, but it'll be a little bit less than that 1,400 feet of climbing that was previously discussed, although it will still be a really, really difficult course for these athletes. The other wild card that's interesting to note is that they've yet to announce a start time for the trials, and in LA, back for 2016, the race started at 10 a.m. and ended up getting really warm there warming into the 80s for that race which obviously affected those that were competing at this point the start time for the race is all in the camp of the usa of usatf as well as nbc that has the television rights and so it's really going to come down to what the usatf decides with nbc in order to get the right viewing viewing audience which if I'm an athlete, is highly frustrating to not know when that time would be because that would be something I would want to prepare for, not only in terms of teaching my body to run at its best when needed, but also to know what type of temperatures I might be facing. There is some speculation that they could start the race at noon Eastern, which would put, which would be essentially the same time or, or around the, a similar time that they started the last one, which was started at 1 Eastern, and so 10 Pacific. So that's the current speculation that they're going to start this thing at noon Eastern, which could mean 
well, which would certainly mean that you're going to be racing this event in the warmest part of the day, whatever that may be for that day in February in Atlanta, which could be pretty warm. So you're going to have potentially heat being a factor as well as the hills being a factor, which is going to make this a wide open trials event. Now, it's going to be warm in Tokyo, we all know, so at least this will be preparing athletes for that, but I do think it it makes it wide open for who could make this team. It's going to be really interesting, lots of fireworks, and so you're going to want to, as a fan, mark that date on your calendar, try to get to Atlanta to watch it. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. As I said, I'll be there, but at least be ready to watch on TV, wherever you may be watching. So... That's a bit of news there. And then, of course, you also had a bit of related news. You had several of those that have qualified for the trials competing in the U.S. 20K championships actually today in New Haven, Connecticut. And so that went off this morning. You had Sarah Hall actually defend her title to win yet another road race, uh, U.S. Road Championships in dominating fashion. She finished in 106.47, winning by nearly two minutes over Katie German. German, don't know that name. Third place was Karis Jokin or Joshin. Don't know that name either. So it wasn't necessarily a deep field for Sarah to, to win against, but shows that she's on form as she's heading into running three marathons over the next six months. She's doing Berlin coming up here at the end of September. She's doing New York in November. And then she's got the trials, of course, next February. So it'll be interesting to see how she handles those three marathons. But at least at this point, it looks like she's on form with this solid win in the U.S. 20K champs. And then you had on the men's side, you had Leonard Career win in 59.06. And then Nathan Martin, second, Parker Stinson, third. Interestingly, Scott Fobble, who's going to be one of the favorites for the trials in February, had to DNF from this race because his, his quote, quote, unquote, from Twitter, his body just wasn't having it today. There wasn't a lot of detail given by the Hoka team. And then as the elite team on what happened with Fobble, but he had to ultimately drop out of this one. And not finish, and then go back to the drawing board and his preparations for also for the trials next February, but obviously he's got plenty of time to kind of get things in order for that. So we wish Scott Fobble the best. Hopefully it's only a minor issue that he's dealing with and that he'll bounce back and get right back into training. So there you go. That's some current events. Hopefully you don't mind me bringing up these things. It's not as often that I get to talk about current events these these days and so hopefully you you don't mind it and of course I'd love some feedback on if you'd like me to do more of that because I'm as I'm considering what my content content will look like for the latter part of this year and with that I wanted to switch gears and as I mentioned at the top I wanted to cover off on some topics that have been top of mind for me as a coach that are again on theme or in on theme with this smorgasbord of a Labor Day episode, sort of three not necessarily connected coaching topics that I've been thinking about and that may be relevant for you as athletes right now. The first one being 
the summer grind. Wanted to talk a little bit about that. I know as a coach who coaches athletes who train here in Austin, Texas, and we've had, I think it's now the second hottest August on record or just had the second hottest August on record with huge streak of 100 plus degree days and it was really really, just really hot really humid as well there was really no relenting we've got a lot of people obviously training for fall races coming up in September October November and because of that temperature and as they get to the peak of their training it's difficult to feel like you're making progress when you're constantly battling the temperatures and so there's a couple of things around that that I wanted to to talk to people about. One is that especially through these summer months, it's okay to worry more about efforts than it is about paces. I know a lot of us as runners are trained to really focus on dialing into certain paces. A lot of our workouts are set up that way so that you're supposed to be running 10k pace or half marathon pace or 5k pace at various times in order to build to your goal race and so it's easy in the summer to get discouraged when you're not able to hit those specific training paces because of what the temperatures may allow or not and so i wanted to offer encouragement to everybody out there one hopefully the summer grind is is coming to an end soon but two also it's okay if you haven't been nailing your paces and workouts it's okay if the efforts are right because the training result actually is really based on the efforts that you're running and not based necessarily on the basics paces that you're running we use pace as a proxy to get you theoretically into the right effort zones but when the heat and humidity and the temperatures are what they are it's impossible to hit those paces because you can't fight physics you can't fight chemistry unfortunately heat is the enemy of not only movement in creating friction in your muscles but it's also the enemy of chemical reactions and it messes with respiration which is trying to happen and the mitochondria in your cells And so, yes, you're slower when it's warm, but you could still be at the same effort and still getting the training result that you need, even if you have to be slower. And so just make those shifts, those adjustments. And in some cases, in our temperatures, it might be 82 degrees and 90% humidity here in Austin on a summer morning. And in order to adjust those paces to, to stay in the right effort zone, You might be running 30 to 40 seconds per mile slower than what would be your theoretical training target pace at any level. You might be running that much slower and still be in the right effort zone. And while it doesn't give you that immediate satisfaction of nailing all of those paces, and for those that are slaves to the McMillan calculator, that's probably particularly frustrating. While it doesn't give you that satisfaction, you're still in potentially, if you manage it right, the right effort zone to get the right training benefit to ultimately build to the goal you have in September, October, November. And so you have to trust that. And in a lot of ways, you have to also be okay with those adjustments because otherwise you're going to bang your head against the wall. You're probably going to be going too fast and that's going to lead to potentially overtraining or potential injury in other ways 
that's going to take you out of your potential goal race. So if you've had a tough August or are now having a tough September, that's okay. Make those adjustments. Focus on your efforts versus your specific paces, at least until the temperatures get better. And then just trust the process that you'll be able to dial in when you need to. So that's one note about the heat. Related note about the heat is that this is also a time when sometimes we get worn down with the grind or where we start to get discouraged because we haven't had a workout that just felt good or felt like you crushed it in a while. And that's where you just got to keep on keeping on, keep on plugging, keep putting one foot in front of the other because the work is still there. Now, of course, if you're dealing with some chronic issue, like potentially maybe not being hydrated enough, which is causing a series of bad workouts, then you need to address that, of course. Or if you know, you're, you're dealing with an injury, address that, of course, or if you've had, you know, if you made adjustments with paces and you made adjustments backing off to get to the right effort levels and you're still feeling terrible, then yes, it may be time to do some blood work and see if there's some core underlying issue. Like we've talked about on the human performance project series earlier in the spring, if those things are happening, yes, check into it. But if you have one bad workout, that's okay. There's no such thing, as I've said a few times this week to athletes here in Austin, there's no such thing as a perfect training block, especially for the marathon. But I think that's true for really any distance that you might be training for. There's no such thing as a perfect block of work. There's always going to be something. There's going to be bad workouts here and there. There's going to be little injuries that, that pop up and you have to manage. And that's just a part of training. That is the way it works. And as a coach, I certainly don't mind any of that for a lot of reasons because you don't have to have a perfect training block in order to have a good race, but also because I think a little bit of adversity makes you mentally tougher when race day actually comes. And so it's okay for me, for people to have to work through things. But it's also okay because I know that when you're in heavy training, you're pushing the limit, you're pushing the edge, and sometimes you're going to fall over that edge. And as long as you're proactive about bringing your energy levels back, recovering appropriately, or dealing with little injury issues as they pop up, it's going to be okay. You're going to get to the start line healthy and ready. So stay the course. I think in general in the summer, it's easier to feel that way because of the temperatures, because of the heat, and especially here in the U.S. where it just feels like you're just constantly getting beat over the head by the temps and the humidity. But that's okay. Stay the course be encouraged. You're doing the work. It's making you tougher. You're going to be ready when it counts. And so just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep executing on your work. Adjust as you need to, to run by effort versus pace and have faith that that will get you to the start line ready. So that's one thing I want to talk about. I've been talking a lot to a lot of people about that, especially here in Austin and actually in our podcast group as well. So that's something to mention. Second point I wanted to talk about is paces. And 
This is not about effort versus pace or heat and how that might adjust. This is really about training paces and making sure and 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 reiterating once again that you have to go easy, you have to go slow, quote unquote slow at times in order to get faster. And as a coach, I'm constantly battling this with runners who are impatient, who let their ego get in the way. And by the way, just to be clear, I'm not talking to anyone in particular. This is a constant battle for me as a coach for reasons that I completely understand, but that I want to make sure and remind the audience about. You have to run easy. You have to go slow at the right times in order to get faster. And it's easy because of ego, because of the fact that it feels like you have to run to get faster. You have to run fast to get faster because that seems intuitively right. It's easy to get sucked into going too fast, which can become very counterproductive. I recently saw a tweet from Scott Fobble talking about doing 10 mile runs in an hour and 16 minutes, which is just over 730 pace you know, for a guy who's running five minute miles for the marathon. So he's running potentially two and a half minutes slower on his easy 10 milers than he is racing in his marathon because that's what he needs to do to be in the right place on his easy runs in order to work the right systems in order to stay healthy so that he can do the hard work when needed. So this is what the elites are doing at the very top of our sport. I mean, Scott Fobble ran 209 in Boston this year. And yet... You know, as runners who are just doing our best to get a PR or maybe qualify for Boston or break some threshold for our marathon, five-hour marathon, we're constantly tempted to go faster than we need to. And it's wrong for two reasons. One, because it puts you in the wrong aerobic zone to develop aerobic capacity, which is what you need ultimately to become a faster runner. And two, because it puts you on the edge, the limit neuromuscularly so that you could potentially get injured if you're running too fast on those easy days. And yes, there's a time and a place to run fast. That's in your one or two quality workouts a week. Every other run, including most long runs, should be done at easy conversational pace in order to actually become your fastest and best self as a runner. If you're not doing that, you're wasting miles you're wasting your time you're ultimately limiting your potential so that's one rant about pace related rant about pace is that even in workouts there's a time and a place for every pace and one of the things i think that's harder to learn for half marathoners and marathoners is the fact that there is as much magic in learning to be efficient and smooth at a given pace as there is in learning to suffer and push your limits at the very edges of your paces. And so most of the time, I think the inexperienced athlete in, in workouts is always looking to suffer more, to take the pace that was given to them and push it and find the edge and dig deeper and maybe feel that pain even more because if it hurts more, then that means it must be working more which can cause you to end up going too fast in workouts or getting beyond the effort level you need to be at in order to get the right benefit for that day. 
And so that's the mode that they end up being into, getting into. And, and yes, there's a time and a place for that. But more often, the mode you need to be in is actually learning to become more efficient and smooth at the given paces. If you're asked to run 10K pace in a workout, run 10K pace in the workout, not 5K pace in the workout. There's a reason you're being asked to run 10K pace in the workout. And there is more magic in learning to become more efficient and smooth and make that 10K pace feel as easy as possible than there is about going faster than 10K pace, at least in many cases in workouts or 5k pace, or half marathon pace, or marathon pace, there can be more magic in learning to be smooth, efficient, relaxed, and in making each one of those indicated training paces feel even more comfortable, feel even more smooth, feel even more relaxed, than there is pushing the limit, going a little bit faster than you should be so that you can grind more, feel that hurt more. Because at the end of the day, running fast for the half, running fast for the full marathon, those races are efficiency games. They're all about being as efficient as possible over longer and longer periods of time. And the more efficient you can be at marathon pace, the more efficient you can be at half marathon pace, the more efficient you can be at 10K pace, the more efficient you can be at 5K pace, the faster you can run those longer races. And so when the workout calls, you know, in whatever form it comes from whatever program you're following, when a workout calls to run half marathon pace, run half marathon pace, dial into that effort, make it feel as easy and smooth as possible versus having that temptation to go a little bit faster, to push down to 10K pace in that interval when you should be doing half. Because that's ultimately where the magic of improvement will come. And yes, there's a time and a place to grind, to find that edge, to push into that quote-unquote vomit zone in a workout, and your coach will tell you when that's there. But more often than not, it's more about, especially for us marathoners and half marathoners, it's more about learning efficiency, feeling strong at each pace level, feeling like when you finish, you can do more reps. It's about control, because control at paces brings efficiency at paces, which brings your ability to run faster over longer and longer, which improves your ability to run faster over longer and longer distances. So there you go. That's a little bit of a rant and reminder on paces because I know I've talked about that before, but it's easy to get sucked into something different, <laughs> especially when you, you just, as humans, we just want to feel like we're suffering for some reason. We have, we're gluttons for punishment, especially us type A runner types. But it's not always about that. And I want you to remember that. All right. My last point before I wrap it up here. This actually goes back to my last episode where I talked about my 50 miler with Sasha Golish. Thank you again, Sasha, for having me on. One of the things I talked about early in that interview, which I've gotten a little bit more clarity on the application of it now, having listened back to that interview one of the things that I talked about was feeling like my goal to run 50 miles was inadequate relative to the pursuits of others, to those that were doing longer, bigger, faster. I mean, I compare what I did in that 50 miler versus what Paul Terranova just did at UTMB running 
106 miles over even more insane terrain in 27 hours. I compare those things and I think my goal to run just 50 with only quote unquote only 11,000 feet of gain was, was, was not worthy of what Paul was doing. And I've had a lot of people come to me and say, that's crazy. There's no way. How you, how would you think that? You know, and, and, I appreciate those comments, but believe me, it's not something I need you to encourage me about, even if I do appreciate those comments, because I completely understand that the way I'm thinking about it is silly, that, as I said in that interview, that it is big enough, the goal that I had, because it was big for me. But the finer points that I wanted to put on that discussion for hopefully your application are, are sort of two points. One is that your goal or one is that your goal is big enough that we we have a tendency as humans to constantly couch our goals in the context of other people's goals and often feel adequate inadequate as a result you know those that might be trying to break four four and a half hours in the marathon it might feel inadequate when others bring up the topic of somebody qualifying for Boston or running a PR that's faster than theirs. And that's just one example. But we're constantly doing that, comparing our goal to the goals of others and then therefore feeling inadequate about our own pursuits. And for me, it manifested in feeling inadequate about running 50 miles because some or others are doing more than that or longer than that or more than more days like that consecutively or whatever it may be. And that's just my version of that silliness, which seems even more silly because it's 50 miles, but it's the exact same feeling that somebody might have, you know, as I mentioned earlier, comparing that 4:30 marathon to somebody trying to, or that five hour marathon to somebody trying to boss and qualify. And I'm here to say that it doesn't matter. Those, those comparison points, Everyone is worthy in their pursuit from whatever their starting point in their goal. And so as I'm telling myself, I'm also encouraging you to stop making those comparisons because it's not helpful. It's not productive. What your goal is, is big enough. It's big enough for you. And that's what matters, not how you might feel comparing your goal to others. So so that's my way of encouraging myself and as well as all of us to just stop comparing goals and to be proud of what you're trying to accomplish because whatever it is, if you're working for it, working hard for it, it is worthy. So that's one point. The second point is that it's easy to often forget how far we've come in thinking about our own inadequacies relative to a short-term pursuit of a given goal. And so for me to think about my inadequacies in technical downhill running, preventing me from running this race in maybe 10 hours and X minutes versus 11 hours and X minutes, for me to, to think about that and almost beat myself up at times for it is really, really silly. Considering that as sort of small tweaks on, on the existing place that I'm at versus couching it in the context of how far I've come to get to a point where I can run 50 miles in a manageable way. I had one person ask me after the race, she said, oh, you must have run crazy miles to get ready for that. 
And while I did run crazy miles in quotes for, for somebody who doesn't run or crazy miles in quotes for somebody who doesn't train for marathons, as I said in the last episode, I actually ran less mileage for me relative to what I might do training for a marathon for a variety of reasons, but also because for 19 years I've trained for marathons and I've been basically training for this 50 miler in one form or another using different pursuits as stepping stones, but training for this 50 miler for almost 20 years. So that the point at which I made this decision to go after this goal, I was standing on so much of a higher plane than if I had one year in decided to go run a 50 miler. And that's a lot to say. Again, my relevant story may not be relevant for you, but it's easy for us to beat ourselves up about our little inadequacies in the context of a current pursuit that we either have achieved or may not yet have achieved. It's easy to beat ourselves up about that and not give ourselves credit and celebrate how far we've come in our journey to wherever we may be and also recognize that that progress means that we're worthy whether or not we achieve that next goal that we might have written down or posted somewhere on our bathroom mirror we're worthy because because we're in the pursuit because not only have we made big progress but we've also we keep striving for better and that characteristic that willingness to to keep striving to me is more telling about a person than whether or not they crush every goal and so it's that relentless pursuit that's inspiring and so that's my second point is one just reflect on and give yourself credit for how far you've come and two recognize that you're worthy just simply for pursuing something big whether or not you get it, regardless of whatever your own inadequacies might be or your shortcomings might be relative to that goal, just recognize that you're worthy simply for for dreaming big and for, for going after that next big goal. So hopefully that takes what was a, a small discussion in that last podcast interview and translates it into something that is now hopefully more relevant and applicable in your own world. But... I'm inspired constantly by the athletes I get to coach just because of that, because they're pursuing something big in in the context of big for them. And so give yourself credit for that as well. And with that, I'll wrap this Labor Day episode. So thanks for bearing with me on this Labor Day smorgasbord of topics. Hopefully you enjoyed a little bit of of the current event coverage, which we hadn't gotten to in a while, and then some random coaching rants for me at the end there and hopefully something resonated with you i am working to figure out my fall content so if you have suggestions on what you'd like to hear me talk about or maybe interviews you'd like to see me do shoot me an inter- uh, an email chris at roguerunning.com or if you just have training questions that you'd like me to get to I've, i'm gonna be doing a listener questions episode coming up soon so send me your qu- training questions as well Again, that's Chris at roguerunning.com. Thanks again for listening. Hope you had a great holiday weekend. And with that, we'll wrap this episode 146. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.